Hi guys, my name is James. <coughs> I'm in my second year of mechatronic engineering. The fun fact about me is I'm a proud fan of the How Ridiculous YouTube channel. You guys should check it out. <laughs> All right, I'm going to read from the Bible, inside page of this lit, from Mark chapter 8. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And I said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Can everyone hear me? Is that okay? You can hear what's going on? That's good. Um, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll dive straight in. Father in heaven, uh, we come uh, today knowing that without your help, uh, we can't hear and we can't understand. And so we pray by your spirit, you would help us to know your son better today. And not just better, but to really know him. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is seeing believing? Is seeing believing? Between about the uh, 15th century uh, in Europe to about the 19th century, the West, and I'm starting like this because Australia is part of that heritage, the West went through huge changes, sociological, technological, and of course philosophical. One of those changes was in regard to how we can know what the truth is. Yeah, we're asking people, is there such thing as an objective truth out on the walkways this week? Or 
Indeed, how can we have knowledge? How can we have certain knowledge? Now, up until that point in the medieval period, it was assumed that the Bible or the church was the centre of truth. God was at the centre and man had a lofty place in his purposes. But as the scientific revolution unfolded, uh, human reason flourished in the universities and it allowed the academia to question everything about what we knew and what we could know. Uh, you may have heard of people like Copernicus or Newton or Darwin. They threw the doors open to, to glimpse into a universe or the mechanics of our universe that didn't necessarily need to take into account a creator. So if you could explain the world without a creator, well, why would you need one? And even though a lot of these scientists remain Christians, scientific exploration just exploded at the time into life. There was a strand of philosophy called British empiricism. Now, I don't pick on them because I'm British, but <laughs> it picked up on the whole scientific revolution thing. People like Francis Bacon and John Locke and George Berkeley and David Hume, these guys <coughs> spent a lot of time arguing that actually you could be certain of truth by what you experience, what the senses experience. Was the evidence we sense adequate to know what truth was? You see, today, people like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, they go on about evidence a lot. That was one of the sides, but there was also the side of reason. That is, is reason necessary to make sense of that experience? So you may experience something, but how can you make sense of it unless you've got a mind and a reason to be able to understand it? A German guy called uh, Immanuel Kant really settled it. And he said there's no such thing as a blank slate mind when it comes down to processing the evidence. We all come to the evidence with certain beliefs and assumptions and ideas. And our existing assumptions colour the way we see the evidence. And that's important. It's an important conclusion when it comes to processing the evidence about Jesus. When you're out there on the walkways and you're talking to people about whether they believe there is truth, they'll often say, well, if you just show me the money, if you just show me the evidence, we would be quick to believe. Show me the evidence that there is a God and I'd follow him. But that's just not true. Kant said it. And what we shall see today is the Bible says it. Even when we have the evidence in front of us, it does not mean we will believe. There is no blank slate of the human mind eager to be convinced. The default position we all have about God, about Jesus, is I don't want to know. Mark's Gospel, um, if you've read it, is full of evidence. In the part of uh, Mark we're looking at today, the question that has been on people's lips is this. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? There's been plenty of evidence to show who he is. He's just come off the back of a huge feeding miracle where 4,000 people were fed. And there's been another miracle where 5,000 people were fed with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. He's made deaf people hear. He has made a little girl who's very sick well. He has walked on water. He's raised the dead to life. Miracle after miracle after miracle has shown who he is and his power. And just imagine if he was here today. Imagine if you knew someone who was facing life-threatening illness, 
and he healed them on the spot. Wouldn't you think there was something special about him? If someone dropped dead, like there was in Jesus' day, and Jesus raised them from the dead by his word, wouldn't you think that this might be someone special? I should take him seriously. Did you see the winds a few weeks back in Wollongong? Strong, destructive wind. And imagine if Jesus was here and said, stop, or be silent, and they stopped. Wouldn't you be awed by his power? But this is the first point. Seeing doesn't mean you will understand and believe who Jesus is. Seeing what Jesus does does not mean you will understand and believe who Jesus is. Take a look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, and to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for the loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, the religious leaders, if you've read the story so far, hate Jesus. They just hate him. Jesus has been telling them that their thinking about God is all wrong. In fact, he's told them that they are actually anti-God in chapter 7. And now, do you see, they're out to test him. They're out to trap him. They're out to catch him by asking for another sign. That's like, show us another miracle, Jesus. But Jesus won't give them one. He knows they already have been given many signs, but they won't believe that his authority is from God. They say his authority is from somewhere else other than God. And that's why Jesus says in verse 15, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, I love yeast. I love yeast because I just bought a new bread machine. Actually, it wasn't new, secondhand. It was only $25, by the way. It was amazing. And I tell you, I love yeast because, in case you don't know, yeast is the stuff which uh, makes the bread rise. It's what gives that, that gorgeous smell that we all love. It's great stuff. It's like this bacteria, isn't it, that multiplies. It's not that yeast is evil or anything. It's just that it, it, it is that bacteria. And it multiplies and it grows and it spreads and it... And it works its way through everything. And that's what Jesus is saying. Watch out for the thing that is spreading, that spreads, that multiplies. And what is the thing that works its way through everything? What is it's the thing that's, that's, uh, that can work its way through the disciples as well? Well, in short, it's unbelief. Unbelief that never mind how much Jesus does or teaches or says, never mind how amazing and astounding his miracles are, the religious leaders will not believe what Jesus is saying about himself. Their minds are already made up. And it's interesting, um, Richard Dawkins, uh, when you read someone like his, him and his book, it's particularly scathing of Christianity, right? Because he says there isn't enough evidence to believe. That's the one thing that he keeps saying. There's not enough evidence to believe it's true. But actually, when you see the way he processes the miracles of Jesus, 
And indeed the resurrection, well, he doesn't do a great job really. He sort of just dismisses it. In other words, his position as an atheist is driving how he deals with the evidence. There is no blank slate. Remember what Kant said? There is no blank slate. We all come to the evidence with a certain mindset. And it's not just unbelief. It's full-on attack to get rid of Jesus. He wants, he's on a mission to actually get rid of Jesus and the idea of God and religion, which is exactly what the religious leaders in Herod wanted to do back then. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Watch out for their unbelief and their gangrenous hatred. And when it comes to hearing and learning and listening to what people are saying, I'm a bit slow, I'm afraid. In fact, I was a bit slow at school. Slow to pick up on things, and I never really made it out of the bottom quarter of my class. So I can sympathise with what comes next. I can sympathise with what the disciples say next. Take a look at verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. A um, little bit of confusion here. I understand it. Jesus is talking about unbelief and hatred of him, but they think he's still talking about the bread used for the feeding miracle. In other words, they don't understand what he's saying at all, and Jesus is frustrated. Look at verse 17. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? See, Jesus' disciples, they've seen what Jesus did. They've heard what he's taught, but they still don't get it. They still don't get that it's Jesus is God's chosen. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Redeemer sent from God. And that's the simple truth in today's first point. Seeing and hearing what Jesus did and said will not mean that you're believing in him. The way the disciples are described is almost comical. Uh, but actually, we're actually just the same. And the problem lies in verse 17, in a hard heart. When you think of a heart, you might think of it's like the pumping muscle, right? But actually, um, in those days, in Jesus' day, the heart was the centre of the being. It was uh, the centre of our being, of our will and our affections and our thinking. In other words, it was the seat where everything operated from. A bit like a control centre, a traffic control centre. Sort of, just, it sort of it, it charted your direction. It, it told you where to go. And what Jesus is saying is that the whole control centre is hardened towards God. It won't listen to God's commands, and we resist his control in every area of our life. We ignore the voice of God coming our way. And it's what we call sin. An inclination to go our way, own way rather than God's. And we're so proud and stubborn that it stops us from letting God be God. And that's what we're all like by nature. Hard-hearted. Not just the disciples, all of us. Friends, it may be that you have grown up with some sort of Christian upbringing gone to a Christian or Catholic school, maybe, gone to school, Sunday school or church. Maybe you're aware of all the stories about Jesus and you have heard his teaching. Maybe you're even part of a Bible study now 
or faculty study. Maybe you know the Bible really well. Lots of ways that we think and look like Christians, isn't it? But we may still be hard-hearted against God. You may be still hard-hearted against Jesus. And maybe you haven't recognised Jesus as your Lord and as your King. You may know all about him, but do you know him? Do you trust him? Would you follow him anywhere he leads you? Or are you still living for you? The problem is, of course, it's not good that Jesus' disciples are still hard-hearted. Can you, can you imagine that? The people who are following him are still hard-hearted. What's the point of being a follower when you don't know who you're following? How will they speak of him when they don't see and understand who Jesus is? Imagine the atmosphere in the boat as they rowed across the lake. Pretty quiet. A bit awkward. Well, did you notice just now, as the passage was read, there's a huge turnaround at the end of the story. We're going to jump to the end of the story. And verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Um, During MYC, our mid-year conference that we've just had, um, I was leading with Rob's wife, Jo, and she as a teacher loves the fact that when students are listening to what you're saying and they're processing what's going on, and from the front you can hear all this, ah, ah, aha, and she said, I love it, because it's like the penny's dropping. And for Peter, there's been a bit of a penny drop moment from zero to hero. Peter gets it. We're not sure what conviction he says it with, but he gets it. You are the Christ. He's answered the question that has been on everyone's lips since chapter 4. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? You are the Christ. That's the answer that Peter gave. Now, Christ, as you see coming up on the screen, is not a name. It's a title. Christ means God's chosen. God's anointed. He's chosen by God. And what had happened in the first part of the Bible, God had promised that he would send his own chosen king who would save his people. He was no less than God. And Peter gets it. Light has dawned on Peter. He has seen all that Jesus has done and taught, and at last he sees. Before he had eyes but failed to see like the rest of the disciples, but now he has eyes and he sees. And it's a turning point for the disciples in the book of Mark. But the question is, how? How did they get it? Jesus is frustrated in verse 21. He's mad with them. But how do they now see? Imagine that. Imagine you come to a movie and it's the middle of a dramatic scene. And you're wondering, how did you get to this point? And then all of a sudden it cuts back 24 hours earlier. It says 24 hours earlier. And it then progresses with the story. Well, that's what actually happens in the story. Because you can see verse 22 there. They came to Bethsaida. This just happens before 
Peter makes the exclamation. They came to beside it, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, when you read the Bible, you need to ask, why has this person written this? Right? And why has he written this here? Why has he put the story here? You need to also ask questions like, why doesn't Jesus heal the man straight away? Why does it take two goes to get it right? Uh, does Jesus not have enough power? Well, no. Jesus certainly has the power to get it right the first time. He's shown that throughout the Gospel. No. Jesus is teaching his disciples through the miracles he's doing. And in this miracle, Jesus is teaching them, his disciples, that they can only see and believe who he is when their eyes are opened to see it. And that's really the second point today. Don't worry, this is much shorter. Uh, we'll get on. You must be able to see in order to understand and believe who Jesus is. You see, the blind man is a picture of what is happening with his disciples. In fact, it's not just for them, it's actually for anyone. Blindness in the Old Testament, or darkness, is often a picture of judgment in the Bible. It's like it's a metaphor for living life without God. Staggering, falling over like you're drunk, blind drunk. And it's linked, of course, with our hardness of hearts. Corrupted control centres. We think we're in control, but actually, we're actually flying blind. During that time, I started with between about the 15th and 19th century, there was a period called the Enlightenment. And if you're a philosophy student or if you're a history student, you'll know all about it. And, and the irony was that there, it was Enlightenment because you were being enlightened to know truth without God. But actually, the Bible calls that endarkenment. That's exactly what it is. Light, seeing, are actually a picture of God's salvation. And Jesus is showing them that it's going to take an amazing act of God's salvation for people to know and understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. It's an amazing act of kindness when God lets his light shine into your hearts. Because we have darkened hearts, hard hearts, and we don't deserve it. So it's actually God's grace on view that they can see. Now if you're a Christian here, like uh, many of you are, and most of us are, never stop thanking God that he's opened your eyes, will you? If it's not for his saving grace, you wouldn't be able to see. It doesn't matter how young you were before you became a Christian or not. And of course, um, Paul prays that for uh, his uh, people he cares for, to go on that their eyes of their hearts would continue to be open to see the glory of God, how big God is, how big God's love is, how amazing this salvation is. So go on, keep thanking God and keep having those eyes of your hearts opened, growing in the knowledge of Jesus by his Spirit. And when we ask, he will only be pleased to do so. 
And even if you're not someone who would call themselves a Christian here today, I've had unbelieving friends who have asked God to reveal himself to them when they weren't sure about this whole God thing. Do the same. God is in the business of opening eyes and shining light of the Lord Jesus into the heart, the dark recesses of our hearts. Now, of course, Peter, he doesn't understand everything for now. Rob is going to pick up on this next week. I think he is. But look at what Jesus says in the following verses. If you've got the Bible open, it's coming up on the screen. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Jesus, uh, Peter, who's just said you are the Christ, he doesn't have a clue what's going on about let me introduce you to King Menelik, the second of Abyssinia. He uh, was a great emperor. He fought great wars in uh, Ethiopia. And he was a bit of a progressive. He was a bit of a. He, wanted, he loved the technology of the West. And he heard about the method of executing criminals by electric chairs. So he ordered three from America. Um, when the chairs arrived, of course, they couldn't be used because there wasn't yet an electricity grid. <laughs> so he gave one to his um, brother or something, and he gave one away, and he kept one for his throne. <laughs> Isn't that great? How odd is it that a king would rule on an instrument of execution? The way that Jesus is going to rule as God's king and defeat the powers and authorities of sin and death and the punishment we deserve is by the cross, that day's instrument of ex execution. The way the kingdom of God is going to come is through his suffering and death. And to Peter, that's ludicrous. Why would the king have to die? Why would God suffer and die? It makes no sense. You see, he sees, but he still doesn't see clearly, which is what happened with the blind man. Like the blind man, there is much more to understand. Friends, unlike Peter, we stand this side of history. On this side of what happened 2,000 years ago, See, it was in God's purposes that his son should come to suffer and die. He suffered for us. He died for us. He took the full weight of God's punishment for our sin. For us. And that's the sort of king Jesus is. That's the sort of Christ he is. Full of power, but full of love. And he rose on the third day. To be the king forever, the Christ forever. But he's God's king now because he loved us to the end. Friends, who do you say Jesus is? We have all the evidence we need. All the evidence that testifies that Jesus is God's forever king. All the evidence is out on the table. You can read it yourselves in the Bible. That's our whole mission weeks, isn't it? See for yourself. Have you uncovered the truth? 
But the evidence is not going to make you believe any more than it made them believe back there. But if you come willing to learn and understand who this man was, the evidence is very clear to point you to King Jesus. It will point you to the truth about God and the truth about us and the truth about our lives. Who do you say Jesus is? You've seen he's the Christ. You've heard he's the Christ. But will you believe it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you um, for revealing yourself to us very clearly um, in your Son, in the Lord Jesus. And we know that we are, by nature, stand darkened and unable to see. We pray that you will help us to see your Son clearly as the King and so believe in him and follow him. Help us to be bold of what we speak of him and who we live for and unashamedly speak of his kingship over ourselves and over the world. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Hey guys, I'm Jemima. I am a second year primary education student. Um, and I'm going to continue praying. So if you'd like to join me, I'll try and speak loud. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him uh, into this broken world, even when we had rejected you, to come and reveal yourself to us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that you came so we could be in relationship with you and that that is an offer that is still up for grabs today, that you continue to make your salvation available for people. And Lord, we pray that this is something that we wouldn't take for granted, uh, that we would continue to marvel at your glory and to desire to grow in the knowledge of who you are um, and who we can be as your children, Lord. Um, and I pray that we would continue to long for heaven, that it wouldn't something be something that is just uh, in the back of our minds, that it's something that we would each day grow in excitement and passion and want to share that with other people, Lord. Um, we thank you for Jesus Weeks, Lord. We thank you for the stall last week and for all the conversations, all the seeds sown about your word. And we pray that that would only be the start of people hearing the gospel on campus this semester. Please continue to give us boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ and to make the most of all of the opportunities that you do give us, not shrinking back, but speaking your word in faith. Lord, uh, we want to thank you for all the faculty groups and the prayer pods that have started this week. We thank you uh, for the opportunity that we have to safely uh, talk and learn about you on our campus, Lord. We pray that that would be a time where you are glorified as your people join together to hear from you, to speak to you, and to just enjoy time in fellowship together. And finally, Lord, we pray for the Christians in Nepal at the moment. Lord, uh, we know that they're really far away from us, but we know that they are your children. 
And so we ask that you would use this persecution that they are enduring to give them a greater conviction and a deeper desire to make you known, Lord. We pray that despite the danger from the government and the people around them, that they would really persevere and that their faith would be strengthened through it all. And all this, Lord, we ask thankful for your son and for the cross. Amen. Um, we've got a fair bit of time left, so I'm going to throw James in the deep end and say we're going to do a Q&A. If you have any brief questions to James, sort of go for next. Five minutes. Sure. Um, I understand why um, Jesus warns against the abuse of the Pharisees. Yep. Why is he warning against the abuse of the Pharisees? Right. Have you got your Bible open? Um, go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Mark, uh, Mark portray, makes the point that actually... Um, the hatred of Jesus and the murderous intent was very early on. Um, so in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, uh, there was a man there with a withered hand, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, and he looks around, and they were silent. And It's interesting because verse 5, he looked around at them with a great anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. Isn't that interesting? So uh, the, the disciples are the same as the, um, these guys at the moment because they're not accepting or they're not following um, and truly believing in Jesus or understanding. But then he stretched out and his hand was drawn. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Why the Herodians? Well, you can understand why the, the Pharisees were um, uh, sort of intent on destroying him because he made a fool of them um, in the synagogue. Um, now Herod, Herodias, or Herod was um, the king of the day. Uh, he was a puppet king, really. He was sort of tried to make everyone happy but made no one happy by being in between Rome and, and, and the Jews. And um, now, of course, as, as the king, if you hear that there's another king in town, and in fact, you see that in chapter 6, um, when John the Baptist is, is, loses his head over it, um, Herod is asking that question, who is this guy? Um, so he's threatened. And that's what it comes down to. It's a bit of a power play. Um, Jesus is always on the attack of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who've got, who've got things very wrong. Um, so it seems as though Herod himself, and they despised each other, the Herodians and, and the Pharisees despised each other. But what do they do? What are they united in? Getting rid of Jesus. Which is why I think when you get to chapter 8, um, it's the yeast of the Pharisees. and It's unbelief. It's a hatred. It's a hardness of heart against Jesus as king. Um, which we all have naturally. I think that's the thing. Um, by nature. Thanks. Okay. Verse 19 and 20, um, why, um, why does he refer to the fact that he uses more loaves to feed less people? Like, what does that mean? Sorry? Why does he talk about um, using more loaves to feed less people? So mm -hmm. what does that actually mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, commentators, <laughs> you read the commentaries, and they're always lots of fun arguing about what's going on. Um, <coughs> um, it's funny, the baskets are slightly different sizes as well, which complicates things. Um, so the baskets that are used in the Jewish territory in chapter 6 are smaller baskets, 
and uh, the baskets used in chapter 8 are within Gentile territory. It's a different word in the Greek, which is to describe a bigger basket. So, um, I don't know. Um, Twelve could signify the fact that they're in Israel, um, and it's signifying 12 tribes or something, and seven is the number of completeness, which I, I don't know. Uh, it could be something to do with the completeness of, um, yeah, of God's people in chapter 8, which was... In chapter 8, it was a, a crowd of mixed people. Um, so perhaps this is it. This is God's intention of salvation is for everyone. This is the completeness. This is the complete picture rather than just Israel. That's what it could be getting at. But yeah, don't, don't get too hung up about it. The problem is, what is it showing about Jesus in the miracles that they, the disciples are struggling with? And what it's showing is that Jesus is God and he's the rescuer. That's really what those miracles are pointing towards. He's the, he is God and he's the rescuer, he's the Lord. And, and yet they're having trouble recognising that. That's why Jesus is frustrated, because their hearts are hard. They're resistant to that truth that he is God and that he's the rescuer. Which is really weird, because you've been walking around all the time with Jesus and not knowing who he is. Thanks, James, for your philosophy explanation as well. Does this... What you said about um, seeing and believing with Jesus, does that have any implications then for if we're out on a stall at Jesus Week or um, Club's Day and you get into an hour-long or two-hour-long logic and reason argument, yeah. um, is there a place for that or yeah, as question. Christians? Yeah, I did think about that. Um, unfortunately, I didn't give enough myself enough time to think about the answer. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a wisdom thing and where you are and where you've got to be um, I think you use I think when you're speaking to people you use all your ammo right you don't just use the, the sidewinder missiles you use service to air missile or whatever it is right? <laughs> so um, you, you can use um, it seems as though in scripture Paul both uses evidence and reason and this is Kant's point I think when you're trying to convince someone of certain truth or, or knowledge of, of the truth, you don't just go in with evidence. Um, and you don't just go in with reason, because human reason is flawed and there's always someone's got a better argument than you anyway. You use all your ammo going in. So, I, you know, how long you do it for? I, I, I just try and say there's, there's lots of different angles you can come to talk to people on, of, of both evidence and reason. But that's not particularly good. Last one. Uh, I was wondering, could you sort of uh, clarify again uh, why he uh, doesn't heal the blind guy in one hit? Why does he go for the, yeah, the yeah. two? Yeah. So the, and also, the, sorry, what's the significance of the trees? And what are the <laughs> the most random That's good. The way Mark writes is, as it were, literally the disciples go from hero to, uh, zero to hero. Okay, they, they, they don't understand who Jesus is, and then all of a sudden they get it. So really that blind man miracle is showing what's happening with the disciples. Okay. Now, um, they can't understand everything clearly because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. And even when Jesus says, um, he began to teach them, it, it is necessary. That the word there is a compulsion. It's, it, it must happen. Even when Jesus says that, they don't get that. Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, and, and Rob will go on to this next week, and um, why, why, why is it rebuking, you know, about it? Well, he said, no, God shouldn't die. So there's things which the disciples don't understand at this stage, because it hasn't happened yet.
But to understand it, they still need an eye-opening miracle. That is, they still don't, they're still not able to accept this type of Christ. Right? So I think the blind man is what's happening to his disciples at that moment in time. Um, um, obviously, in the rest of Scripture, all of us need an eye-opening miracle to understand who Jesus is. We're all hard-hearted. Um, but I think he's focusing on the disciples there at that point. Cool. And the trees? And the trees? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs>